0: Welcome to the Grace College Podcast, a ministry of Grace Bible Church located in College Station, Texas. We desire to impact students who will impact the world for Christ. Hope you enjoy the talk and hang around for more after. You can grab a seat uh, and check this out. Buttery, flaky crust. Mm -hmm. Bake on a buttery crust. It's close. Bake on a buttery flaky crust baked in a buttery flavored crust uh crust yeah baked in a buttery flaky crust baked in a buttery flaky 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 here we go here we go baked in a buttery crispy crust flaky i left flaky out again Uh, baked in a buttery uh crispy crust flaky i thought I said flaky you should have had me do that oh yeah she does that good Baked in a buttery flaky. <laughs> baked in a buttery flaky crust. Baked in a baked. Baked in a buttery crispy flake. Baked in a buttery flaky crust. Yahoo! Man! Sometimes it is just hard to call something what it is, right? Sometimes it is hard to proclaim the truth about something in front of you. It can be hard to admit that is a buttery, flaky crust, right? It's hard sometimes. It's, it's hard to maybe admit that that test grade is actually what I deserved. Uh, as much as it pains me to admit, maybe we have to admit, you know what, that football loss, it's not the end of existence, right? It's the end of my existence, but maybe not everyone's existence, everywhere. Sometimes it's hard for us to admit the truth about something, to call something what it really is, because a lot of times that confession, what it does is it leads to consequences that we don't want to have to deal with. Consequences that we want to try to avoid or just sort of live in denial apart from. It's hard for us to admit that person is not interested in me. Because the consequences, that means that we have feelings that are unrequited. That means that we have to change the way that we view that person or that relationship or, or how we're going to be living in the immediate future. Sometimes it's hard to admit that dream is no longer possible. Why? Because the consequence is that we have to get a new dream. We have to move forward. We have to go in a new direction. It's hard to admit that that friendship that I've loved and I've leaned upon is falling apart. Because the consequence is, well, I need to either do something to, to fix it. I need to ask forgiveness or seek reconciliation, or, or I'm just going to lose that person. It's hard for us to admit, man, that it's, it's hard for us to call a decision that we've made that seemed great at, a time, at the time. It's hard for us to call that a terrible mistake, looking back. Because that means the consequence is we have to own up to that fault, to that failure, to that issue. Many times it's hard for us to call something what it really is because confessing the truth can have difficult consequences. The world looks at Jesus of Nazareth and as a whole it looks at him and says that he is a good man or a wise teacher. The, the unintentional starter of this religion that really kind of got outside of his control. And yet when we look in scripture at Jesus of Nazareth, what we see is that he is called the Christ, that he is called the Christos, the chosen one, that he is the Messiah who moved into creation to bring life to the dead. That's what we see Jesus of Nazareth called in the word of God. And when we see this chosen, when we see this Messiah, we realize that God is not just this unknowable entity or this distant divinity, but that God became flesh so that he can know us intimately. And when we look at the life of Christ recorded in the gospels, what we see is the chosen one choose to bring us alongside of himself, choose to Grab us and bring us in to make us his followers so that we could join him not only in his life and death, but also in his resurrection. So that we can join him in life beyond the grave. That's what we see in the life of Christ. And that's what we're going to see this morning in Matthew chapter 16. We're going to see Jesus taking his followers aside and asking them a very pointed question. And that question will create a confession in their midst, which will then lead to difficult, difficult consequences. Because when we accept Jesus as the Christ, it means that we are accepting a God who asks us to abandon self-interest, to abandon self determination, to abandon self satisfaction, and instead answer a call, adopt a lifestyle that is centered on self denial and self sacrifice. And that's a difficult consequence when we confess that truth. In Matthew chapter 16, Starting in verse 13, we see that Jesus had come to the area of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? All right, so Jesus is taking his disciples to a very intentional place. He's actually, they're kind of on their way to Jerusalem. It's a long roundabout way, but they're kind of on their way to Jerusalem where Jesus is going to be killed. Uh, but on the way there, they're stopping at, for a moment at Caesarea Philippi, which is a, is a significant location because it's the location of a temple built to Caesar, where basically people from the area would come to this temple and they would confess Caesar is Lord. The emperor of Rome, he is in fact God. Right? Now they, most of those people, they would say he's a God. Right, They had a lot of other gods on the side. But part of being in the Roman Empire meant that you had to confess Caesar to be Lord. And so Jesus Christ is in this place where all these people are coming and gathering and confessing Caesar as Lord. He turns to his disciples and he says, hey, who do people say that I am? Right? He says the Son of Man because this is a term that he uses repeatedly throughout Matthew, throughout Mark, throughout Luke. This is a term that he uses over and over again to describe himself. Something we talked about last week where he's not only pointing at his humanity, right? Son of man, emphasizing the humanity that he had taken upon himself, but it's also a taste of what he will be. The son of man prophesied in Daniel seven, the one who would fall from heaven, would descend and, and have this kingdom that lasts forever, this authority that is unsurpassed. So Jesus Christ looks at his disciples in this place where everyone's calling Caesar, Lord. And he says, who do people think I am? Who do people say that I am? And this is a very pointed place. It's also a very pointed time because Jesus at this point in his ministry, he's been abandoned by a lot of people. He's been preaching and moving and teaching for, for years, a few years now. And there were crowds that had amassed. And yet what they were finding, those crowds, these kind of fan, this fan base, is as much as they loved the healings and the miracles of Christ, they hated what he was teaching. They loved what he did. They hated what he said. And so slowly but surely, they just kind of peeled away. And he had been abandoned by his fans. He had been abandoned even by his family, the people of Galilee, who thought he was crazy. And all he was left with was this core group of followers. It was a very point in time, he was basically at the, his Gautier moment, okay? I don't know if you remember Gautier. He loved paint, and he talked about someone that he used to know. And... He was really big. I found out six years ago, it doesn't seem that long, but six years ago, he was, he was on top of the world. His, this music video has like 600 million views, something crazy. All these fans, all these people had gathered and said, yes, someone used to know you, but I know you now, and I, I want to follow you, Goatye, and it's going to be great, and I love, and that girl's not in the band, but she, maybe later, I don't know, and, and all these people were kind of gathered, and yet today, Goatye, I don't know, I, I couldn't even find it online, there's there no, no one knows. Where is Goatye? I don't know. He's like French or European or something. So maybe he's there. I don't know. Like, I don't know. (laughs) Because I've abandoned him. All right? I abandoned him. Jesus Christ has been abandoned by that large mass of people. He's left with this kind of core group of followers. And so he turns to him. He says, who do you say that I am? Or sorry, who do people say that I am? And so they say, well, some people think that you're John the Baptist. Other people say that you're Elijah. Other people think you're Jeremiah or just maybe one of the prophets. And this is an incredibly telling uh, response. Right? People are saying, well, maybe you're the resurrected John the Baptist. There was a, there was a ruler at that time, a, a regional ruler who thought that, that maybe this is John the Baptist raised. Some people thought, well, maybe John the Baptist wasn't actually the one who would come in the spirit of Elijah to prophesy the, the coming, to pave the way for the Messiah. Right? Some people thought that maybe Jesus was that, and John, was, they'd missed the mark because he'd been killed. John the Baptist had been beheaded at this point. Other people thought it was Jeremiah. That's awesome uh, because... Uh, essentially, Jeremiah was one of the like major like bummer prophets. Okay, he was called the weeping prophet because uh, he just kind of was like. Hey, God. So he was just sort of a downer. And people didn't really like him at the time. They still didn't really like him at this time. And because he talked about a lot of the destruction that Jerusalem was going to face, that the Israelites were going to face. He he, uh, just sort of is very critical about Israel as a whole. He talks about how authority is linked to suffering. Uh, And so people were like, well, Jesus is kind of a downer sometimes. (gasps) What if it's the same bummer guy? Like, what if this is him? I love this thought process. So Jesus hears that out. He says, okay, okay, cool, 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 wrong, wrong, wrong. But who do you say that I am, right? So he turns to his disciples and says, well, what do you think? And this is a very pointed time, not only because he's been abandoned by these followers or by this fan base, but also because uh, this is sort of just in a very quiet, secluded moment. Right they're on the outskirts of this town. They've been on this long journey kind of through the wilderness together. They've been hanging out for a few years. And the reality is that there had been confessions in the past. There had been moments in the ministry where, where his disciples had, had called out like, oh, you're the Messiah. Oh, you're the son of God. In fact, when, when he calms the storm, he's on a boat with them. And they're like, they're like, oh, we're gonna die. And Jesus is like, no, don't worry. And he calms the water. They, they turn to him and they're like, oh, you're the son of God. You are God made flesh. But that's in a big emotional moment, right? That's kind of that camp high, like, wow, like there's this miracle right in front of me, and I'm going to respond to that. But this is a very quiet moment. This is a very different moment. This is after years of just sort of quiet contemplation and study. So he turns to these guys. He turns to these people, to these followers. He says, hey, who do you say that I am? You spent years with me, walking with me, listening to me, following me. Who am I? So Simon Peter speaks up for the group. Because Jesus, it's a y'all right there. In the Greek, that's a, who do y'all say that I am? Howdy. Like, that's that's what's happening. It's a plural. And Simon Peter speaks up for the group. And he says, you're the Christ. He says, you're the son of God. In other words, he says, you're the Messiah. You're the chosen one. And what's so incredible is that we now see that the Messiah is not this great man, that the Messiah is God himself, the son of the living God, meaning that you are of the same essence. You are are God. He says, that's what we see. That's what we know. That's the conclusion that we've reached. Not in this big emotional, like, yay moment, but in this kind of hard, quiet time. He says, you're still God, and you're going to deliver us. You're the Savior, you're the Messiah, you're the Chosen One, you're the Christos. And that's a beautiful confession. That's an incredible truth. And it's something that Jesus hears, and I'd like to think that it just warms his heart. Because when he hears this confession, when he hears this truth proclaimed, he turns to Peter and he says, you're blessed. Oh, you are blessed, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven did. Right? He says, you're just a man. He, so he points out his, the fact that he's the son of Jonah just because he's saying, you're, you're a guy. You're, you're Simon, some translations say Bar-Jonah. That's just a transliteration of the Hebrew. Bar is son. He says, you're the, you're the Bar-Yana. You're the son of Jonah. You're just a dude. And yet you've just said the most important thing. that you'll ever say. And yet you've just realized the most important truth you'll ever know. And it's by the grace of my Father in heaven who's revealed this to you. And this is something that we need to recognize is that as believers, we've been given a gift. If you confess Jesus as the Christ, if you have decided, you know what? I'm going to trust not in myself, not in this world, not in some other God, not in some other text, not in some other promise. I'm going to trust in Jesus Christ, in Jesus of Nazareth, that he is God, that he stepped out of heaven and onto earth to live and die and rise again for me. I'm going to trust in who he is and what he's done. I'm going to ask him for the forgiveness that I know is found in his name that's been accomplished by his work. And if I believe that, if I hold to that, if I confess that truth, we see without a doubt that it is a gift that we've been given. It's by grace through faith in Christ that we are saved. It is an unmerited gift or favor from the Lord that we would know this to be true. That something that should humble us should be something that, that, that shakes us to our core. To recognize that God has given us this cornerstone, this foundation for our belief that, that Paul will say is a stumbling block for other people. He says it's, it's the crucified Messiah. He says it's a, it's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's foolishness to the Gentiles. He says this is a truth that does not make sense. God's wisdom is separate from the world's wisdom. He says the world and its wisdom will never know or understand God. And yet God, because he is so loving and so gracious, he has given some of his wisdom to some of us. So man, if if you own this truth, this is a gift that you've been given, something that you should be grateful for, something that you need to be responsible with. And it's something that honestly, I know, not all of us have actually held to or accepted. Some of us, I know, this is a faith, this is an idea that we've been handed. And we're in college and we're maybe still kind of feeling it out. We're still kind of doing, going through some of the motions just because we're not really sure what else to do yet. But I'd encourage you to stop today. Today. And ask, do I hold to this? Do I believe this? Is this a truth that I would personally confess? Is this this something that I I really build my life upon? And if that's so, I mean, if if that's true, and I pray it is, Jesus says, okay, that's a beautiful truth. That's an incredible confession. He says, but here's some consequences. He says, this is what's going to follow. If you held to that truth, if you believe what you've just said, if you believe that I'm the Christ, this is what that means. He says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'm going to build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Okay, Jesus is about to launch into kind of a, a lot of different points. We're going to walk through it a little bit, uh, a little slowly, just to sort of get all of it. It's very, very dense. This is a very dense passage. And he starts off by saying, look, you're Peter, and it's on this rock that I'm going to build my church. And he's using um, some wordplay. All right, so so he's talking about this this rock that's going to be built upon right and and there's different views on this very godly Christian men and women will fall in different camps when it comes to this uh, passage and who exactly or what exactly this rock is All right there's some thoughts that well this rock is Peter right that's that's the part of the argument for why he is the original pope for the Catholic Church it sets up uh, they would then take this forward and that explains apostolic. Uh, 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 a session, uh, It sets up uh, papal authority, this kind of stuff. Um, that's one camp. Another camp is they would say, well, no, this is, he's saying the rock is the confession. It's the gospel itself. It's just sort of communicating the gospel about who Jesus is. They would say, that's, that's the rock. Other people, and, and this is probably the, the main line, mainstream uh, thought, you know, evangelical theologians would say, Jesus is talking about himself. That's the rock. The truth that he is the Christ, that is the rock upon which we are built. That's the foundation that we've been given. They, they get this because when we look throughout Scripture, we see people talking about the Messiah as a stone or as a rock. It's prophesied in Isaiah 28. That the Lord, he says, look, I'm laying a stone in Zion as a precious, or an approved stone set in place as a precious cornerstone for the foundation. And the one who maintains his faith will not panic. Isaiah is saying, there's going to be this Messiah. There's going to be this chosen one. And when he comes, he's going to be the cornerstone, the foundation of what we believe. And if you place your faith on that, you're not going to be shaken. You're not going to be panicked because you've got this bedrock. You've got this solid foundation in this Messiah, in this promised one, in this deliverer. Jesus himself kind of refers to himself. He quotes this passage referring to himself in Matthew 21, saying that I'm this rock, and this one that's been set forth. Peter, who's being addressed in Matthew 16, he calls Jesus the stone. He quotes Isaiah 28 in talking about Christ in 1 Peter 2, 5. He says, am, you are this Christ, he's this rock upon which we as living stones have been built. Paul does the same thing, First Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1. So we see this idea that this Messiah was going to be a stone. is, is called the stone. And, and Jesus right here, when it's recorded in the Greek, it's two different words. All right? So he's, he's literally saying, you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. Okay? Now, some people would argue, well, if he's speaking Aramaic, which is a theory, they would say, well, he, then he, it's just one word for stone. But what we have recorded, the inspired word of God, written out in Greek, it's two different terms, Petros and Petra. And essentially what's happening is he says you're a stone. Okay, Petros is like the idea of like you walk out in your yard and you're like, oh, Petros. Okay, that's what you find in your yard, the Petros. A Petra is like you go to a quarry and you're like, oh, Petra. Not Petros. Petros. Petra, oh, too big, oh, uh, bye. Like, and then you leave, that's, that's a Petra, okay? It's this giant rock, this big stone, okay? Petras, Petra. And that's what Jesus is saying, that's what's recorded in the Greek. He says, you are Petras, and there is a Petra upon which I'm gonna build my church, I'm gonna build my people. In other words, he's using wordplay. Right? This is a fantastic moment in the life of Christ. Christian dads everywhere look back across time and space, they say, well done. Like, that is good. I taste and I see and I know that it is good. Like, this is a beautiful thing. Jesus is using wordplay to make a point. He's saying, I'm going to build my church, my people upon this Petra. And, and it makes sense, especially in light of the confession that's been made. Peter just says, you are God. So not only do we see the Messiah called a stone, not only do you see this kind of fun wordplay, but we look throughout Scripture, we look throughout prophecies, we look at the psalmists, and they consistently refer to God himself as a rock. Psalm 18, my God is my rocky summit where I take my shelter. He's my shield, the horn that saves me, my refuge. My God is this immovable stone. So it would make sense that if Peter is saying Jesus, you are God, that Jesus would then follow up with this imagery that's been consistent throughout Scripture. He says, yeah, you're this stone, Peter, and I'm this rock, and you guys are going to be built up on me. I'm going to have my people be built upon the truth that I am the Christ, that I'm the Savior, that I'm the chosen one. And he's saying, I'm going to build my church, right? And then this term that's being used, it's, it's ekklesia, right? There's, there's no Greek term, um, that there was nothing that looked like what we are at that time. Okay. So there's no, it's not necessarily, it, it doesn't just point to grace Bible church or first Baptist Brian or whatever it might be. Ecclesia was used for all types of gatherings. It was essentially just an idea of a, an assembled group of people, maybe a, like kind of a separated group of people that gathered probably for a purpose, sometimes religious. And so he says, this is where I'm going to build my ecclesia, my gathered people. And and this is a very pointed moment, again, because remember, they've left the crowds. They've left the cities. They're on the outskirts of this town, and he's preparing to die. And, And it's the perfect time to essentially prepare his followers and say, look, this is what it's going to be like. This is your new lifestyle. If you confess me as the Christ, this is the consequence. You're going to be separated. You're going to be removed. You're going to be a new people. And you're going to be separate from the masses. You're going to be separate from the civil and religious authorities that you know. And you're going to be this new entity. You're going to be this different assembly. And that's what we see in the early church. Is that right off the bat, as soon as Jesus Christ ascends into heaven, his people start to gather. And they're in small groups and they're gathering in these places. And they're assembling so that they can worship Christ, so that they can serve Christ, so they can live out lives that reflect who he was and what he taught, so they could be his hands and feet in his absence. And they're doing these things not just as local assemblies, but what we see unveiled in Scripture is this beautiful truth that we're not only a part of the local body, the local ecclesia, but we're a part of a broader, a universal ecclesia. We're part of a broader universal church that we are of the same body as believers all over the world. Jesus Christ says that's going to be your new existence. That's a consequence of your confession. You're going to be a part of this new group. And you're going to be built up as living stones again. Peter says this in 1 Peter 2. Oh, snap. Yo, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen. Turkeys walking in a circle around a dead cat in the middle of the road. What? bro, this is wild. Interesting. We skipped ahead just a bit. Uh, but the reality is that we will gather around all kinds of stuff, right? As people, I promise, we were going to build to that, and it was going to be so clear. Uh, But we'll gather around things, right? We'll we'll center on stuff. Just as people, uh, we will kind of build our friend groups or we'll build, build our lives around some sort of central idea or principle. We will structure our lives and our thoughts and our desires around sports teams or fantasy sports teams that we just make up in our minds, and put on the computer. We, we will center our lives around, around politics, about, around policies, about who should be elected to what position and what municipality should govern what sort of... We will center our lives on, on the careers that we're in. A lot of us are in organizations right now that are all about teachers, being teachers in the future as teachers. Like that's, a, that's probably... Tiffa, tiffa, tiffa is probably an organization at a and right now. We will center around other people or we will gather with other people around an idea or a concept or being engineers or being teachers or being accountants or being in business, whatever. And Jesus Christ is looking at his followers and he says, I have something better. I have something different. He says, you don't just have to gather around the the thing of that day. You don't have to just gather around an idea or a person or a teaching or a philosophy. Here's what you can gather around. You can gather around me and you can gather around Yahweh, the living God. He says, that's what you have the opportunity to do. As living stones, you can be built up on me, the Petra. And you will form a new body. You will form a new assembly. You will form a new thing. That this world has never seen. Just that's what you can belong to. You can gather around something worthwhile, something eternal. But if we were going to truly confess right now, what are we gathering around? That's the question we have to ask. I mean, this is an opportunity that's been given to us, but yet, what are we actually taking hold of? What are we doing? What are we gathering around? Where are you spending your, your time and your thoughts and your energies? What are the unifying bonds for your your friendships? What kind of unites you with other people? Is it that you just like all love the same season of Parks and Rec? That's not bad. But is there more? Is there a deeper gathering point? Are you surrounding yourself with people that want to gather around the incredible truth that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ? Because that's what we can do. Jesus looks at his followers and says, man, you've got the potential to gather around a lot of dead cats. Which is so weird. (laughs) He says, but you can gather around me. You can gather around something greater. And I'll tell you, when you gather in this way, when you're a part of this body, he says, you know what, the gates of Hades, they won't even be able to overpower you. And what he's saying right there, this this is a strange statement, but what he's essentially saying is the authority and the power of death will not overpower you. Okay, the gates were a place of authority and power. It's where business took place. It's where rulers would go. It's where a lot of important stuff would, would happen. And so it's this kind of authoritative place. Hades was just sort of this general term that the Jews had a, a interesting theology on death and that had kind of gotten misconstrued and kind of warped over the years. And so he's saying not, he's saying, look, you're going to be immune from the power of death. Right? That's essentially what he's saying. He's saying the, the, the gates of Hades, they're, they're not going to be able to overpower you. They're not going to overcome you. And he knows this because he's going to die. And then he's going to rise. And in his resurrection, he's going to prove, I have power over sin and over death. The grave is not the end. And you can join me. He's telling his followers already. He's like, spoiler alert, you don't have to end in the grave. You can join me beyond that. As you gather around the living God, you're going to find true life. And this is an, an emboldening statement. I mean, if we know that we have the truth, that we have the life, that we have the way to eternal salvation, to eternal life, that should be something that gets us moving, something that, that, that empowers us, something that emboldens us. Some people, they hear that, they're like, dang straight. They see the imagery of of Christ storming the gates in in eschatology and releasing the captives of sin and death. Man, they're like, yeah, that's right. i got to go get a megaphone. And i got to stand next to the Sulrah statue and yell at people. (laughs) Some people, that's their takeaway. And I will say, at times, maybe the Lord uses people in that way. But at the same time, there is a scriptural, there's a biblical precedent for us being emboldened and yet finding balance in our lives. Paul speaks to the Thessalonians, and he says, hey, I love that you guys want to be examples and, and proclaimers of the gospel. Absolutely, you need to keep doing that. He says, but, but get a job, all right? Because a lot of them had quit their jobs. They're like, done not matter? coming back. I'm just going to talk to people and whoa, worship. Like I, and then he was like, okay, I love that you love, that you are, you are expecting the return of Christ. I love it. He says, but, but get, a, get a job, like, Pay for your own food, be quiet sometimes. He says this. He says, you, need to, you just need to be quiet sometimes. And he says, That's a powerful ministry. He says, You can use that to proclaim the gospel. God can use you in that accounting firm. I know, it's hard to believe. You're like, There's only spreadsheets, but no, <laughs> there are other things. God wants to use us in those environments. He says, Get a job, have some balance, but be bold, right? We don't need to be uh, offensive. Or, 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 or belligerent, but we can be and should be open and bold with our faith in talking about our God and talking about this truth that we would confess and affirm. Yet are we? Right? Do, we do we lean into those moments where we think spiritual conversation could happen? Do we lean in and, and ask that intentional question or, or kind of talk about spiritual matters with that workmate or that classmate or that lab partner for the very first time or, or when we sort of see that window start to open when we maybe feel the tug of the spirit, do we just kind of pull back and I'll pray, pray for him later? We should lean. Christ says there's no power, not even death can overcome you if you're mine. So live in that truth. Embrace that consequence. He says, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you release on earth will have been released in heaven. He's saying, I'm not just giving you the keys to the pearly gates. Right? Some people have taken this and they say, oh, Peter is guarding heaven right now. And it's the setup to like so many churchy dad jokes. St. Peter was sitting at the gate and there were two giraffes in the first. You know, like that's Fine. Joke-wise, theologically, unsound. Okay, don't don't hold to that. Jesus is saying, I'm not giving the gates to heaven. I'm giving you keys to the gate of the kingdom of heaven, meaning the the kingdom ethic, meaning the kingdom lifestyle, meaning I'm going to use you to to bring people to the door of faith. And he says it to Peter specifically in Matthew 16, but he says it to all of the apostles in Matthew 18. This is not something unique to Peter. He says, I'm going to give all of you this opportunity even people that weren't present at that time. We see Peter absolutely bringing people to that door of faith. He he does it to the Jews at Pentecost in Acts 2. He brings it to the Samaritans in Acts 8. He brings it to the Gentiles in Acts 10. He's on kind of the tip of the spear, on the the edge of the gospel over and over and over again. But we get to see the apostle Paul do the same thing. This door of faith terminology is, is biblical. It's from Acts 14, and we see that Paul, and they're talking about the ministry of Paul, that he had gone and he had opened a door of faith for the Gentiles. It's this idea that we're a part, we're in the mix uh, of bringing people to know the Lord. Ultimately, it's the work of the Spirit. Ultimately, it's it's the work of the Lord through us. But but we get to be in the mix, right? What a beautiful opportunity, what a beautiful gift that we can be in the mix of of bringing people to that open door. It's an incredible opportunity that we've all been given. (laughs) We to get here, Beautiful. What a beautiful picture of the gospel at work in our modern lives. God says, you know, I- I'm the one that's moving. It's my spirit that's gonna call people. People aren't gonna just be argued into the into faith. People aren't going to be convinced into faith. He says, it's going to take the, the draw of the spirit of my God revelation. He says, but you can be a part of it. I'll use you. That's why Jesus looks at his disciples eventually and he says, hey, I want you to go to all people in all nations. I want you to tell them the things that you've been taught. I want you to preach what you've heard preached. I want you to, 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 to teach them to obey the things that you or yourselves are obeying. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, I mean, are, are we taking advantage of that opportunity? Uh, who are we opening this door for? Are you building relationships with non-believers? And if so, are you using that platform to proclaim the gospel? You know, it's great to to, to be nice and, and loving and kind, and that is a witness, absolutely. Our actions matter, but so do our words. We're not called to go to the ends of the earth and be nice. We're called to go and to preach and to proclaim the truth, not to just hope that maybe this person will see through my niceness that God is good. Like, we need to bring the gospel clearly, openly, boldly, wherever we find ourselves. It's a consequence of the confession that we've made. And Jesus says this is all a part of bringing about God's will. That's what, he, that's what he gets at when he's talking about this binding uh, and releasing. He's using terminology used by the church leaders at that time that are essentially, uh, you bind things, meaning forbid things, and you release things or loose things, meaning you permit them. And he's not saying that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. It's not you do it here and so it's done in heaven. He's not saying that that, God's, or that man's will is accomplished in heaven. The Greek verbiage right here, the the words that are used are very intentional. He's saying what you do here will have already been done. The, The stream goes this way, not that way. You can't walk into your class, look at the syllabus, stand up on day one and say, you know what? There shall be no group project this semester, for they are a scourge upon humanity, and they have no place amongst us. Right, you will get applauded for sure for preaching the truth, but that doesn't work. That's not going to somehow like work back and oh, the syllabus—it changed before my eyes. Like that's not going to happen because the department head or the professor that these stuff has to just—it doesn't flow that way. Jesus says, you're going to bring about God's will. It's the same way that Jesus prayed, God, I want your kingdom to take place here on earth. I want your will to be done just as it is in heaven here on this earth. I want us to live in the ways that you've set forth. I want us to obey the commands that you put in front of us. He says, that's what you have the opportunity to do. If you've gathered, if you've confessed me as the Christ, this is a consequence. You have the opportunity to not only proclaim the gospel, but to live it out. To live out the will of God on this earth. And yet, what are we doing? I don't always do that. I'm a professional Christian, and I don't always do that. The reality is that we all find ourselves at times, maybe in some contexts more than other contexts, maybe with some struggles more than other struggles, finding ourselves wanting our will to be done, wanting our desires to be filled, wanting to satisfy me instead of listening to the call and the command, the desires of the God who saved us. When we confess that Jesus is the Christ, there is a consequence. We have a new people that are united in life, in joy and satisfaction. It's incredible, but we also have a new purpose. Right, This people is set apart and they, we cannot be overcome by death. Man, What an incredible truth but we have a new purpose. We're called to live in obedience to this God who made us, who saved us. So what truth do we need to confess today? What truth do you need to confess in your heart? Whose will are you seeking to enact on this earth? What doors are you opening for others to come to faith? Where are you shrinking back in timidity instead of stepping forward in boldness? What are you choosing to gather around with your life and with your friends, with your relationships? And ultimately, what are you believing? Who do you say Jesus is? Because that's the foundation for every other question. So let's go before the Lord. Let's ask him to to bring those answers to our hearts and minds. God, we we thank you that you've given us your truth in Scripture. God, that it is something that is trustworthy. Lord, it is something to be cherished. And Lord, we just ask that as we move forward, having read what you've written, God, having, having heard what Jesus proclaimed, having seen the truth that's been revealed to us, Lord, we ask that we would be a people that are different, a people that are changed, a people that do not just walk out and think that's a good thing to know. I'll just kind of jot that down and put that in a, on a cue card in my bank. Something that, That's not something that should just sit idly in the back of our minds, God. This is a truth that should move our feet, that should move our hands, that should move our mouths. This should be something that, that pushes us forward. So God, let us be that people. Let us be those people whose hearts break for the lost around us. Let us be those people who want to speak this truth as often as we possibly can. Not only to those who haven't heard it, not only to those who don't believe it, but God, even to those who have heard, who have believed, who just need to be reminded and encouraged that we have a cornerstone and a foundation that is separate from any broken junk that we could come up with. So take a moment right now Start by asking the Lord, God, show me, is is this a truth that I hold to? Be honest with yourself. Honestly confess, do I believe that Jesus is the Christ? The Messiah, the chosen one. The way, the truth, and the life. And if so, God where is it that I'm ignoring the consequences of that confession? God, where is it that I'm still chasing after my own will? God where is it that maybe i'm I'm still timid I'm still shrinking back but I'm still afraid of the the thoughts or the the, the stigma that could come with my bold proclamation of the gospel Lord, where is it that, that i'm that I'm not seeking out to, to open the door of faith for, for people that need it that need to hear it? Lord, convict me of where I'm failing. But then pray that God would move into that, that his spirit would empower you. He's promised us that his spirit is strong where we are weak, that he's made perfect where we're we're imperfect, where we're broken. So say, God, draw to my mind where it is that that I'm ignoring the consequences of my confession. But Lord, embolden me. Lord, strengthen me. God, move me through that. Let me walk out of here as a person who is changed by the truth that I've received. Pray those things right now.